Welcome to the Verse by Verse podcast, a ministry of the Friendship Congregational Bible Church. I'm Richard Church, the teacher on Verse by Verse, and I'm glad you've joined with us today as we study together God's infallible word, verse by verse. Let's turn today to Ephesians chapter 6. And so verse 19, he says, And for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Uh, The Apostle Paul, um, you know, we maybe maybe picture him as being this, this bold, uh, forceful speaker, but it doesn't seem that that was probably the reality of the case. In fact, you remember he, he talks in various places about how what people were saying about him was that his letters were weighty. See, we, we know about the Apostle Paul through his letters, but what they said was in, in you know, his physical presence is weak, okay? And um, Paul, you know, again, although he's very bold here in these letters, it's easy to be bold in a letter, Right? Uh, in fact, there's, there's many times um, where somebody's style of writing is very different from how they are in person. You know, he, he's praying that he would have the, the ability to speak when it's, when it's necessary to speak. And to do it, he says that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Okay? And so this, this was an area where Paul was not, he was not confident in himself to be able to do these things. He asked them to pray, to supplicate God for that, that, that utterance would be given to him. Here, when, when Paul says that utterance may be given unto me, it's that, that the ability to speak would be given unto him. And again, if you, you know, you read through the book of Acts, and you see, you see, uh, various times where the apostle Paul would speak even in very adverse circumstances. And you might say, why would he feel that he had a need for that? He seemed to be doing pretty good with those things. But you see, Paul wasn't doing that just in his own ability. He was doing that um, with, a, with a reliance on God to supply that utterance to him. Uh, he says that I may open my mouth boldly. And the, the word boldly is used there in verse 19 and in, in verse 20. Uh, when he's talking about speaking boldly and opening his mouth boldly, the, the word that's translated as boldly there has the idea of, of being able to speak freely and frankly and openly. Uh, he asked them to pray that for him, that he would open his mouth boldly, just, just freely. There are many times when we know that we ought to say something, and yet we close our mouths and we don't say what we ought. Right? We do it because of uh, many reasons. We do it because we, we feel it might hurt our, our social standing with certain people. It might hurt certain relationships that we have. We, you know, we fear these various things. And that same kind of thing, Paul experienced that as well. And so he asked them to pray for him that he would open his mouth, that he would speak the truth of God's word just freely and openly and, and boldly. Uh, he, he says that... that he would want to make known the mystery of the gospel. Now, we're, gonna, we're going to uh, come back to that. But he says in verse 20, For which I am an ambassador in bonds. Now, 
an ambassador, you realize an ambassador is a representative of one government to another government, right? An ambassador would be a, a, a diplomat. The job of an ambassador is to represent the policies of his home government to the foreign government where he is serving. And you know, that's our job as believers. We are ambassadors. We are representatives of the heavenly government to the, the world in which we live. Uh, if, if you go back to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, here in 2 Corinthians 5, it gives to us what is the, the, the right policy for us to represent to the world. And you know, it's a very important thing that an ambassador correctly and clearly uh, brings, you know, brings across that correct policy. Uh, here in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse, verse uh, 18 says, all things are of God who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation to wit that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, you see there, it describes us as ambassadors. It says we're ambassadors for Christ. It says, as though God did beseech you by us. You see, when, a, when an ambassador speaks to that foreign government, they are speaking in, in the name of the government back at home. You see, so what they say represents who their their home government is. Here, Paul uh, talks about our position as ambassadors. He says it's as though God did beseech you by us, and he says we pray you or we ask you in Christ's stead be reconciled to God. And so when we act in our, in our capacity as ambassadors of Christ, we are speaking for God and we are speaking for Christ. Now, what that means is that if you represent the wrong message, what you're doing is you're, you're lying in the name of God and you're lying in the name of Christ. You're claiming a, a, a policy like that ambassador did. You're claiming a policy that isn't the real policy. And you see what the, the message is, the, the ministry is that's been committed to us. It's the ministry of reconciliation. Okay? Uh, you, see, you see what it's, just read the verses again. Verse 19 says, to wit, or to witness, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now, how many... Believers, how many how many churches do you know that are representing that policy of reconciliation of of God toward toward man uh, in the world today? There are many churches that are um, representing a policy of condemnation. Now, it's certainly true that God condemns sin. In fact. Uh, in verse 19, when it says that God was not imputing the world's trespasses unto them, the reason that God could not impute their trespasses unto them is because they were imputed unto Christ. See, there was a condemnation of sin in Christ uh, so that, that sin was so bad, so sinful, so wicked in the sight of God that God judged and condemned His own Son because of sin. See? But 
Since that payment has been made, the message that we have to go out into the world with as ambassadors is a message of reconciliation. You see, it says that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself. God has reconciled the world unto himself. Well, does that mean everybody is saved? Does that mean that that, uh, there there is no hell, there is no punishment for sin? Well, you see at the end of verse 20... Um, He says, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. Well, if God was reconciling the world unto himself in Christ, why does Paul say to, he says, you be reconciled to God. See, reconciliation is a a two-way street. Um, When God created the world and God created man, he created it and and he pronounced it all good, right? But when Adam sinned, It wasn't that God declared war on man. It wasn't that God became man's enemy. It was that man became God's enemy, right? When when Adam sinned, he sided with the adversary, with Satan, against God. He believed the word of Satan more than he believed the word of God, and and he sided with Satan against God. And he took on a nature that was just naturally at enmity with God. Uh, realize that all of us come into the the world with that same nature. We come into the world naturally. Nobody has to teach us to be an enemy of God. We do that on our own. Now, man by nature can can be religious, right? But but religion is something done in enmity against God. It's not done in in honor to God. It's done in enmity against God. Um, In fact, I mean, since I mentioned Adam and Eve there, you know that in the Bible, the fig tree is a type of religion. It's a, it's a figure of religion. And, and remember how Adam and Eve, when they realized the separation that was there between them and God, and they realized their shame, they tried to cover themselves with fig leaves. That's what religion is. Man trying to cover up his nakedness and shame before God. Now, when man became God's enemy, because of God's holiness and because of God's justice, God was forced by his nature to become man's enemy. Right? Because man became sinful. And, and God, that, that sin cannot stand in God's presence. Um, sin is something that is abhorrent to the nature of God, so that God had to, had to separate himself from man. Now, God didn't initiate the whole thing. Remember, man did. But God had to, had to respond in kind. What the cross did was it fixed the problem from God's perspective. Right? In... in Uh, the crucifixion of Christ, the justice of God that caused God to be man's enemy was, was satisfied. God's justice was satisfied. The sin of the world was paid for. And God is no longer at enmity with the world. But the world is still at enmity with God. Uh, the, the world is still, go back to, um, go to Romans. Go to Romans chapter, chapter five. Romans chapter 5, verse 6, there, there are um, three ways that the, that the uh, sinner is described here in this passage. Uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, it says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Okay, and so the, the, the uh, unbeliever, now here it's 
you know, it's talking about man kind of in, in general when it says in due time Christ died for the ungodly and when we were yet without strength. But it's true, it's true of every sinner who's without Christ. First, they're without strength. Um, they are ungodly. Verse 7 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Verse, verse uh, 9 says, Much more than, being now justified by his blood, we should be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. You see, we were God's enemies. Now, maybe you didn't feel like God's enemy. Maybe you didn't, you know, I mean, it's uh, the, the atheist, for instance, would say, well, I don't even believe God exists. How could I be God's enemy? But uh, the fact of the matter is that God does exist. Uh, the fact of the matter is that the God of the Bible is a, a God that is distinct from all the, the gods that the world worships. You know, the people worship all kinds of things that they call God. That doesn't mean they're worshiping the God of the Bible, Okay. And to worship another god is to make yourself the enemy of the one true god. Uh, and, and that's just who, that's, that's how the world is. When you look at the world and you see the things that go on and, and, and you think to yourself, how could, how could people do those kinds of things? You have the answer in the scripture. That shouldn't be a surprising thing to you. How can they do those things? Because they're enemies of God. Okay, it's not a, it's not a surprising thing. It's not a, a, a shocking thing or an unexpected thing. Um, enemies of God are going to act the way that the world does. All right? And, and so even though God has reconciled the world to himself, the world is at enmity with God. But you see, there's an opportunity for man to be reconciled to God. The verse we just read there in Romans 5 said, If we were enemies, we were reconciled uh, to God by the death of his son, much more than being reconciled. When you believe the gospel... What, what is happening there is you cease becoming the enemy of God and you become a part of the household of God. And you're no longer at enmity with him and you actually are individually reconciled to God. See, God has reconciled the world to himself in a, in a general sense, but the individual is reconciled to God when they believe the gospel. And so that's why Paul says there, be ye reconciled to God. He says that as an ambassador, that God's attitude toward the world today is an attitude of reconciliation. And so he represents that policy of the heavenly government to the world to say, God's reconciled you unto himself, be reconciled to God. Now, you know, in, in all of that, the, the, ministry, the ministry of the church is not a ministry of condemnation. Uh, now that sometimes is, is what some churches, they proceed as if that is their ministry, as if it's a ministry of condemnation. But the ministry of the church is a ministry of reconciliation. The, part of the problem, though, is that the world is so much an enemy of God that to even tell them that they need to be reconciled sometimes makes, makes them hate God all the more. Um, if uh, Christ warned his disciples that if they hated God, they're going to hate you. Okay, and so to come to that, the world, I mean, for, as a believer, you know, you, you see that, that message of reconciliation and it's such a, a good thing. You wonder why would anybody ever pass up on that opportunity to be reconciled to God? But see, to, be, to, to accept that, they have to accept that they are God's enemies, right? They have to accept that they're sinners, that they even need a Savior. And so while it's a message of peace, it often, it often uh, uh, 
brings about hatred and enmity of the world against that message. And certainly, certainly Satan hates that message. Um, that's why Paul says that he was an ambassador in bonds. You see, there was a cost to being the ambassador of the heavenly government, and it was to be put in prison by the powers of this world. If we go back to our text there in Ephesians 6, Paul Paul describes, remember the book of Ephesians is one of the prison epistles, and um, Paul is is, uh, writing this from prison in Rome, where eventually he was put to death, eventually he was was beheaded. Um, He describes himself in verse 20, he says, For which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. When he says therein, he's again talking about the bondage that he's in, the bonds that, that he was in. And he's saying that, that even in those bonds, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. So even though Paul was bound, the word of God wasn't bound. Um, Paul, Paul would witness to the guards that were there. He witnessed to other prisoners. He witnessed to everybody that he had the opportunity to witness to. Um, the, uh, there, were, there were many times, by the way, uh, under that Roman rule when Christians were persecuted that uh, following that same example, Christians who were set to be, to be killed would witness to their captors, and many of them, many of the Romans, came to be saved through that. And Paul sees that opportunity there, and that's why he's asking them that even in these bonds, that he would, it would be given to him to speak boldly. If you skip back up to the end of verse 19 there in Ephesians 6, he, he says that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. The mystery of the gospel. And that, that mystery of the gospel is why Paul said that he was an ambassador in bonds. Now, when Paul talks about the gospel, the word gospel means good news. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of a general term. There's, there's a lot of different things in the Bible that are referred to as good news or as gospel. Okay, so you've got to be careful about context when you see that word gospel and, and make sure you're understanding the, the good news that is indicated by the context. Um, here, when he's talking about the gospel, the good news, the, the gospel that Paul was proclaiming was the good news of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. He summarizes it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the, the first few verses. You can turn there, 1 Corinthians 15. If, if I were to ask you, what is the gospel? If we were to go out and just ask people at, at random, maybe think in your mind what, what your answer to that. What is the gospel? Um, if we were to go out and ask people at random, uh, most, you know, a lot of people would just have no understanding at all or, or be even able to tell you anything about what the gospel would be. Um, even among Christians, if you were to ask them, what is the gospel, you would get a wide variety of answers, some that would be close to what the Bible says and a lot that would be far off from what the Bible says. Um, if, if you're here today and you can't answer what the gospel is, or if when we look at these verses, the answer you have in your mind is different from what the verses say, um, you, you should question whether you are saved at all. Because you're saved by trusting the gospel. And if you don't know what the gospel is, it's kind of hard to trust in something you don't even know what it is. Right? Here's how 
Paul summarizes the gospel in a nutshell here in 1 Corinthians 15. In verse, start in verse 1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand, by which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. And he goes on to give all the evidence for the resurrection. You see, he lists three things there. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Now, realize that here Paul's not giving you every detail of the Gospel. Right? He's not repeating like he, like he did back in, in Romans chapter 3 uh, and chapter 4 about you know, all that was accomplished there. But in a nutshell, he says Christ died for our sins, meaning he didn't die for his own sins. He didn't die for himself. He died for our sins, for, for our sins that we've committed. And it says he did that according to the Scriptures, which means that what the Scriptures say about what Christ was accomplishing there is true. It's, it's not enough just to believe that Christ died, okay? There are, there are many lost people that believe that Christ died, and even that Christ died for sins, okay? But he says that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Christ died for our sins in the way the Scriptures say, in that he paid the complete price for our sin. He, that in Christ... God was reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them. See, all those things are in view when he says he did those things according to the Scriptures. And again, there are plenty of lost people that believe that Christ died for their sins, but they believe that in addition to Christ dying for their sins, there's this whole list of things they have to do. And if they do all those things right, maybe they'll get into heaven. And they're believing Christ died for their sins, but not that he died for their sins according to the Scriptures. They're, they're believing that according to some church tradition or, or something like that. But you see that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Verse 4, that he was buried. And, you know, people debate whether the burial of Christ is, is essential to the gospel. You realize that, that in the Bible, burial is done to put something out of sight. And that body in which Christ bore our sins was put out of sight in the grave, it was, it was buried. And you know, when Christ came out of the grave, he wasn't bearing sin anymore, right? So it tells you something about where the sin was left. Symbolically, it was left buried out of sight, okay? The, the burial is important to the gospel. Certainly, the emphasis is not placed upon it that, that is placed upon the death and the resurrection, but, but the burial is an important part of that gospel. And so Christ, was, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Um, the resurrection of Christ. And again, that He did that according to the Scriptures. That what the Scriptures say about the resurrection is true, not just the fact of it happening, not just the historical fact, but what was accomplished by it. So the Scriptures say that if Christ is not raised, then, then ye are yet in your sins. Right? It, the, the death completed one part of what Christ had to complete, but the resurrection is what sealed the deal. And if Christ only died for sins, and if Christ was only buried and never rose again, we have no hope whatsoever. And so the resurrection, you see, is a part there of the gospel. And so the death, burial, and resurrection, and what those things accomplished according to the Scriptures, that's the gospel. But Paul didn't say he just wanted to make men know the gospel. Certainly, he wanted to make that known. But 
he said to make known the mystery of the gospel. You know, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ were all the fulfillment of prophetic things. They were not mystery. People talk about the mystery of the cross, but they're not using the word mystery in the way the Bible uses the word mystery as something that was was hidden and unprophesied. Okay? The cross was not unprophesied. When, when you go back into the Old Testament, I mean, you, if you really look, you can find the cross almost on every page of the Old Testament in one way or another. It wasn't unprophesied. It wasn't secret. It wasn't hidden. Okay? It, it uh, certainly wasn't understood even by Christ's closest disciples prior to the event, but it was there. It was, you know, God was showing those things in type and figure and shadow in the Old Testament. It wasn't mystery. Um, the, the burial of Christ and the resurrection of Christ um, are not maybe made as clear in prophecy as what the death of Christ is, but are still there. Uh, they're still there in type and shadow. They're not, they're not mystery in the sense of completely being kept hidden by God. But there are some things that, about what, what Christ accomplished that were not revealed there in the Old Testament. They go beyond just, just you know, his death for sins. There's a mystery of the gospel. As, you know, earlier here in the book of Ephesians, in fact, the book of Ephesians is probably the book of the Bible that talks the most about that mystery. If you go back to Ephesians chapter 3, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1, says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. The focus in the mystery is on the Gentiles, not on Israel. Israel was the focus of prophecy, but the Gentiles are the focus of, of the mystery. If you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. And you see he mentions there the dispensation of the grace of God, and that's the dispensation that we live under. And you see he equates it with the mystery. Now, the dispensation of the grace of God was not a prophesied period in God's plan. It was kept secret. It was kept hidden. And you see that that mystery was made known by revelation, by special revelation to the Apostle Paul, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ, by the gospel, whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given, that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable, which means the untraceable, untrackable. You can't go back and find these riches of Christ in the Old Testament. There's something that was secret. He says that I may, should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. You see, the cross had a purpose with regard to prophecy. It also had a mystery purpose that God hadn't let anybody know about. And it wasn't revealed until later. And you see that focus on the Gentiles. He, he emphasizes here that the Gentiles would be fellow heirs. Uh, you know, in the Old Testament, the Old Testament talks about Gentile salvation, and there were many Gentiles saved throughout the Old Testament into the, you know, in the, the four Gospels, the life of Christ. There were Gentiles who came to Christ, but they, for one thing, they always had to come through Israel one way or another. 
And for another thing, they never had the same status as what Israel had because God had chosen those people of Israel for, for, uh, to be a, a peculiar people unto him. And the Gentiles, even the believing Gentiles, never had the status that Israel had. But here, you see it says that Gentiles should be fellow heirs. And there, it's not fellow heirs with, Christ, or with, with Israel, but it's fellow heirs with Christ himself. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body. You see the body there is the body of Christ. Uh, partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. And the fellow heirs there is to be fellow heirs with Christ. See, the, the mystery, there are some things revealed in the mystery that were never revealed in prophecy regarding the Gentiles. And in the Bible, it's only in Paul's epistles that you find that mystery. Okay? Now, that doesn't mean you should only study Paul's epistles. You should study all of the Bible. But you should realize there's some things there in the letters of Paul that you aren't going to find anywhere else in the Scripture. And Paul was given those things by revelation, and he had a, a duty and a responsibility to get them out as far as he could in his lifetime to make them known. You see here in Ephesians 3, he speaks as well about making all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. And, and uh, in our text in Ephesians 6, he talked about making known the mystery of the gospel. Hi, I'm Richard Church, the teacher here on Verse by Verse. I'm glad you've listened to our podcast today, and I would like to let you know that if you have any questions about anything you've heard here, you can contact me by email at richard at richardchurch.com or by telephone 608-339-9522. I also encourage you to check out our church website at www.friendshipbiblechurch.com. Thank you for joining us today, and our prayer is that this program would be a blessing to you in helping you to grow in your understanding of God's grace.